This podcast is strictly for mature listeners. So if you're under the legal drinking age, you are not permitted to listen under UK law. If you would prefer not to hear conversations about alcohol, you may want to listen to something else. But if that's not you, stay with us for Bar Fabric Presents. Hello and welcome to Bar Fabric Presents, a podcast brought to you by the Brown Foreman Advocacy Team. Each episode, you'll hear from our team of ambassadors as we share stories about the brands we're proud to represent and the people who've inspired us along the way. I'm Ali Didienko, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this episode of Bar Fabric Presents. In every episode, you'll hear from one of the team defending drinks that either have a bad rep or are overlooked in a segment called You're Wrong About. Later, Cam will defend the 80s classic, the Lynchburg Lemonade. You'll also hear How'd You Get That Job? where an industry expert will delve into the details of their career and give tips on how to get a job in their profession. Later in the episode, you'll hear the second part of How'd You Get That Job with Garad Cahill, our master distiller at Slane. Last time, Garad spoke to Mick about how he got into the job and the different avenues you can take in the field of distilling. If you haven't listened to the first episode of this pod, check it out. Garad gives some great detailed advice about courses to help you get into his industry. Later, he'll be sharing his insights on the future of Irish whiskey and slain. And to round off the episode, we have the second part of Four More Bars. Joseph and Brian continue the conversation about the tracks that create the right atmosphere on a night out. Plus, stories about Paris and disco adventures. Let's get into it. Hi, I'm Cam Dawson, Jack Daniels UK brand ambassador. And I'm here to tell you, you're wrong about the Lynchburg Lemonade. For too long now, I've seen the Lynchburg Lemonade being ousted from your cocktail menus in favour of twists on old fashions and Manhattans. You don't like the lemonade top, you don't like its association with a global brand. Heard of the Aperol Spritz? Well, instead, bars are commonly boxing my beloved Tennessee whiskey into stirred down and brown categories. And that doesn't sit well with me, or a big percentage of your customers. Now don't get me wrong, my vibe is a Manhattan twist, like a well-made Brooklyn or even a Greenpoint. Ah, the Greenpoint. But you know what? Sometimes you want a drink that's long and refreshing, with whiskey. To fight my case and to change your mind, let me take you back in time to the humble beginnings of this modern classic, the 1980s. This was the synth-pop, shoulder-pad-clad decade that gave birth to millennials, like me, just... Purple Rain, The Goonies, The Rubik's Cube, and even Post-it Notes. At the very start, 1980, Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Ah, not always great in the 80s, actually. Jimmy Carter was running the show in America, and Willie Nelson's On the Road Again was providing the soundtrack to the southern states. And whilst we're on that road down south, Tony Mason was selling his creation, the Lynchburg Lemonade, out of his Huntsville, Alabama bar and restaurant. It was to be a whiskey revolution. He was changing the game on whiskey drinking by not mixing it with the usual cola that Jack Daniels in particular had become synonymous with. He wasn't even mixing it into a stirred down and brown concoction, but with lighter flavours of orange liqueur, lemon juice, served long with Sprite. It was sunshine in a glass and the people were loving it. Over the coming years, it was to travel the world and become a whiskey classic. Musicians even wrote songs about it which counts for something in the classic cocktail fight, right? Today, the Lynchburg Lemonade is often snubbed by cocktail bars for being a bit too disco, 
It's an 80s drink after all. But it was that original stateside recipe that was the truly discotheque version, of course. A shot of each whiskey, triple sec and summer mix, then topped with lemonade. It must have been hell of a sweet for our sour palates of today. But that was the 1980s. And it was from the same place where they serve you mashed potatoes with marshmallows on top. Nowadays, the go-to recipe is much more balanced and focused on the whiskey. I stick to a tried and tested formula of a shot and a half of Lynchburg's finest, half a shot of triple sec, the juice of two lemon wedges, and a top of Sprite. The only ingredient there from the 1900s, by the way, is the Sprite. Classic much? It's super easy, it's super fast, and it's super refreshing. Angry that it's not the original recipe? Well, a lot of the original Manhattans had gum in them, so I'm good with this twist. But here's the thing. For those of you that still ain't sold on the drink that your customers love, remember, we're cocktail bartenders. We upgrade, we twist, we reinvent, and we give it the all 2.0 treatment. At its soul, the Lynchburg Lemonade is essentially a spruced-up whiskey fizz with orange liqueur as the sweetener. In my role as Jack Daniels BA, I've played around with the recipe a fair few times. I've swapped out the orange liqueur for an orange Amaro, which, unless you've been living under a rock for the past decade, you'll know that Amaros are pretty popular with the bar folks today. I've swapped out the Sprite for a fancy and sustainable lemon peel sparkling water. I've even dashed a bitter or two in version. The truth is, the cocktail is fully customizable. But do we really want to change it? In its original form, the Lynchburg is a simplistic beauty. There was an old poster advertising Jack, which I love. It read that Jack Daniels is proudly served in fine establishment, and in the small print down below it read, and questionable joints everywhere. The poster had a point, and I've always loved that about Jack. He's a familiar face over the bar, no matter where you are around the world. But the same can be said for the Lynchburg Lemonade. You can order a perfect Lynchburg in the world's finest bars, and I have. The Savoy, tick. The Connaught, tick. Glen Eagles, tick. All of these places wouldn't bat an eyelid if you ordered one, and the tender would immediately grab those bottles of Jack and Triple Sec and start that double-hand free pour. Sure, they might spruce it up with a touch more fresh lemon, gum, and maybe a soda top instead of that lemonade, but the soul is the same, just fresher. You can also find all of those core ingredients in those questionable joints we all know and love too. I'm pretty sure I've spotted all the ingredients needed for a Lynchburg in the Rover's Return and the Queen Vic on TV. Sure, the server in these types of places may need a spot of coaching on ratios, if you're that sort of customer, but it's a pretty forgiving cocktail, you know? So get off your high horse and bring back the Lynchburg lemonade to your repertoire. I'll let you off with mixing the fresh juice, gum and soda version. Hell, garnish it with a mini Rubik's Cube and transport your guests back to the 1980s if you must. Anyway you're making it, viva la Lynchburg lemonade. Stick that on a post-it note. After that passionate defense, I'm feeling a bit sour that the Lynchburg lemonade is no longer available in RTD format. I mean, what significant changes have you seen in Irish whiskey over the last 20 years that, that really do excite you? If, if you look at 10 or 12 years ago, there were three or four distilleries in Ireland. Now we are on 32 or whatever it may be at the moment. Uh, that in itself is, is jaw-dropping in terms of the range of distilleries, in terms of size, in terms of raw materials, in terms of different processes, but also in terms of talent, curiosity and innovation as well. So rather than this, the newer distilleries, which generally tend to be smaller, but the newer distilleries are coming along and... Um, 
rather than being in the shadow of the bigger uh, distilleries and that the bigger distilleries are making very good whiskies, the innovation and the new releases and the unusual maturations have actually influenced the larger uh, distilleries to actually start taking on this curiosity and looking at their own customers and saying, okay, well, if people want some variety, they have excellent distillers, they have excellent products, and they can start playing tunes with that. So I think the the rise of the smaller distilleries in number, uh, and then to a lesser extent in terms of overall volume, has really shaken up the, the industry in a very positive way. It's become even more uh, consumer focused. It's satisfying a need, uh, literally a thirst and a curiosity for what have you got that's new? What have you got that's different? How do you make that? Why is that different from this product, either from yourself or from somebody else? So there's been a real uplift in uh, curiosity from consumers. A lot of people have come on board saying, I thought whiskey was an old man's drink. It's certainly not. Uh, and what are these uh, new um, upstarts, I was going to say, but these new upstarts and startups, what are they doing and, and why are they getting such traction and such media attention? So the whole business has been turned on its head, all for the good. And we're actually seeing such a range of whiskey types, finishes, blends coming along that it's a very interesting time to be in the business as a distiller, but also as a consumer and somebody uh, fascinated with whiskey. The other piece is, and this is what, th there's often debates on this, usually late at night after people have had one or two uh, to help their discussion is, okay, so I only drink this whiskey and I only have it with a sip of water and I must wear tweed and I must sit down beside a fireplace and whatever else it may be. And actually that couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, there are some sipping whiskies that are really enjoyed on their own and people should enjoy them there and not throw in a lot of blackcurrant or something like that. But the uh, revolution of the uh, cocktail uh, arena with fantastic whiskies at their base has really taken Ireland and the world by storm. Uh, and that's a very interesting place to be because some whiskies make absolutely fantastic cocktails. And if people enjoy them in a cocktail or they enjoy them with a drop of water or they enjoy them with nothing but ice, more power to them. Let them enjoy it whatever way they wish. Yeah, I think... Um just echoing what you've said, you know, on on the experimentation stage and, you know, well, you know, 32 or plus distilleries and immediately I thought, well, that's one for every county, which is a nice little, nice little fact. I might drop that into one of my sessions as a little joke. But this this competition or this, you know, expanding of, of the Irish whiskey market has led to increased kind of experimentation. Um, and I think that echoes Irish whiskey you know, hundreds of years ago where we we were very experimental, you know, in terms of mash bills, in terms of usage of cask, you know, and we were, we were playing around with these kind of things. And it's nice to see that Irish whiskey is being pushed in that direction again. But I have to say globally, I think that is a direction that whiskey is taking, you know, using different casks, being slightly experimental, pushing the rules within the boundaries of the rules. I think one with, with lockdown, especially in the last couple of years, people realize how easy it is to make drinks, you know, um, at home. And why not use their favorite spirits? Why not start thinking about rather than that espresso martini? Well, maybe we can sub in, you know, Irish whiskey or we can sub in some of your other favorite spirits. And they're starting to experiment. They're less afraid to mix. 
And the want for premium spirits has increased massively. You know, people want quality now much more than than they might have done in the in in the past, which I think is is great for our industry. Um, and those drinkers, like you said, anybody you can drink it however you want. Um, but if you come into whiskey through cocktails, um, you're ultimately going to end up sipping it. So for us, it's a win-win anyway. You know, we more people love Irish whiskey. We like you say, drink it however you want, enjoy it however you want. It's your drink. So obviously, we mentioned your extensive experience in in brewing. So nineteen years, you know, brewing all over the world globally. I mean, how has that benefited your career progression into into whiskey production? Yeah, when we make whiskey here uh, at at Slane, we're using raw barley directly from the castle estate and also malted barley um so knowing your raw materials uh, is really important uh, and understanding how to get the best out of them in the brewing world i've used weird and wonderful things all over the world to make really good beers uh, but the fundamentals are still the same i have a starchy grain i need to convert that into a sugary wort that then our yeast can get going with. So in terms of uh, the brew house processes from the quality of the raw materials in the first place, uh, how to then store them, mill them correctly, get them into the mash, get the full breakdown and a comprehensive breakdown of those um, starches into fermentable sugars. And then the understanding yeast and fermentation that's brewing and that's distilling. So I spent many a year doing that. My, um, doctorate in brewing or my PhD in brewing is actually in brewery yeast management, how to manage yeast, how to get the best out of them, how to understand how they work. And people used to say to me that it was a bit crazy that sometimes you need to think like a yeast. So if you're sitting in a wash, is it too warm? Is it too cold? Is it the right ionic balance? Is it the right nutrition there? Did the fermentation run too short, run too long, run too hot? They're, they're living organisms like us. So if we are in an environment where we're not particularly happy, we're not going to perform our best. So yes, I do think like a yeast and I don't mind saying that. It helps you understand every path that that yeast takes throughout the process. And so the, the brewing and the raw material and the brewing and the fermentation side, all, all the experience I have has been just as important in the brewing world, but it's even more important now in the distilling world because you get that wrong, then you don't make good whiskey spirit. Uh, you get it right, you make excellent whiskey spirit. So the whole brewing prelude to my distilling uh, career has actually been time well spent and has actually given me the expertise and the, the understanding and the toolkit to uh, actually uh, build a fantastic uh, distilling process here at Slane. I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> there you go. That's exactly, that's exactly what we're after, isn't it? Um, but like you said, it's, it's all that experience in, in, working, in working with yeast because that's, that's where the magic starts. Um, well, it starts in the field with the, with the barley, um, but, but we, can't, we can't extract those sugars, those fermentable sugars that you mentioned to kickstart that flavor production um, when, when, we go to, when we go to fermentation. What a lot of people don't realize as well, Mick, is that the yeast is producing all our alcohol uh, in our fermentations, but they are also producing a wide range of weird and wonderful flavors like these fruity notes so you can get apple flavor, banana flavor, pear flavor. They're all coming from yeast. Uh, so if you treat them in a particular way, you can encourage them to produce more of that. 
And they're all the bedrock for beers, but they're certainly the bedrock for whiskies. And then in the distilling process, we need to take the greatest of care to capture all of those flavors in the right proportions so that we're then making sure that they're locked away in the casks and make sure that they're giving us the, the balance of flavor and the complexity of flavor that we want. So the yeast is very much the unsung hero in all of this for producing alcohol, but these other fantastic sweets of flavors. Um, the, the unsung hero, I think, is, is, is exactly right. Uh, so we focus a lot on sustainable practices at Slane. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about what that means and, and how we implement that um, on a day-to-day? Yeah, the, if, if you even look at the location of the, the distillery here at Slane Castle, uh, we're in the grounds of the castle. We're in reclaimed ancient buildings here. Uh, so we've tried to minimise the amount of new build that, that was possible. Uh, and if you look at parts of our spirit store, they're actually made with... Um, long life uh, wooden beams and wooden pillars. So rather than having lots of concrete and brick structures, which are, uh, let's say, carbon intensive to produce, uh, we've actually looked at sustainable building materials. So nestled then in the heart of the estate, we're actually able to supply most of our own uh, cereals for production of our whiskey, whether it's raw barley or malted barley. And then we have the fantastic resource off the Boyne River right beside us. So we use that as our source of brewing water, but we also use that to uh, cool our stills when we're uh, running our, our distillation process. So rather than having large refrigeration plants or big uh, cooling towers that would take away from the ancient history of the site here, we're using river water. We're taking it in, cooling our stills and returning it uh, unchanged, uh, uh, apart from a small temperature rise back into the Boyne River. So what could be more natural way of doing that? Um, there's been money spent very wisely. The quality of the plant, uh, the, the distillation plant itself, whether it's the brew house, the stills or the fermenters, um, stands for itself. And we actually have Rolls-Royce plant here to give us the best possible quality of whiskey spirit, but the best efficiencies uh, and to run them in the most economical way. The, the piece that I like is there's such a traditional view of whiskey making here as well to honour the old practices and certainly stick within the regulations. So even if you look at our uh, fermenters, they are all wooden fermenters. We don't use any steel fermenters. So it's not like there are wooden fermenters out the front and steel fermenters out the back. The only fermenters we have are wooden. Why would you do that? Well, it's a sustainable material. It's a very traditional process. Fantastic for insulating our fermentations. The yeast are very happy in there. But also towards the end of fermentation, you get this natural slight acidification because wood can't be sterilized the same as steel. Uh, So you get this lovely backdrop of some acidity flavors creeping into the wash, which some of that then expresses itself in the spirit. Uh, So for us, it's really sticking with the tried and tested traditional practices whilst we then have Rolls-Royce plant then to get the best out of that, to harness those flavors and make sure we don't lose any of those on their way to casking. So sustainability for us has been the, the, the bedrock right from the beginning and the birth of the brand and the birth of the distillery. And certainly as you walk around the distillery here and you see the reclamation of ancient buildings, the building materials, the focus on uh, being as friendly to the environment as we can in terms of energy usage, water water usage. Um, It's a fantastic backdrop uh, to be able to then produce a a great brand in the heart of the Boyne Valley here. You mentioned um, 
the 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 wooden washbacks adding acidity and not being able to be cleaned and that that will give distillery character over time and a unique flavor that only can be delivered from those from those washbacks so by using them you 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 develop a, a style that nobody else can really have is that would be my understanding. Yeah, and it would be unique to our process because that'll depend on the turnaround time, the extent that we clean them. Um, so we will we will clean them with hot water and that so you will leave them uh, very suited for fermentation. But there's always a, a backdrop there where just at the end of fermentation, you'll start to get this fantastic acidity. And those organisms are from the Boyne Valley, so they're unique to here and they'll actually then always be here uh, as we keep uh, brewing and brewing and brewing and sending our washes forward then for distillation. Um, but Garod, thank you very much for your time. And should I say Dr. Garod Cahill, to give you your full title, who currently our distillery manager, hopefully going to be taking on the, the, the title of Master Distiller very soon. Thanks very much for your time. Um, I hope I see you very soon. And I hope some of our listeners come and visit you in the distillery. All right, welcome to Four More Bars. This is a segment that's dedicated to the best music in hospitality, where, as always, I'll be thrusting myself completely out of my depth by speaking to experts in the musical arts, such as Brian Gaillard. Um, okay, the next one is a song that reminds you of your first time working in venues, you know, whether that's DJing or playlist curation or even playing live. Um, so that was that would have been at the um, my, my last job in Paris before London, um, that was at the Hotel Indigo, uh, Paris Opera, uh, boutique hotel, once again, very well targeted. Um, uh, worked there for a couple of years and really pushed to really make it as lifestyle as possible. It was in the lovely pedestrian Parisian street that could not look more Parisian than that. It's just, just a lovely place to, to hang out in, really, um, leading to a theater and those beautiful terraces right there that we had to, that I felt um, had to be exploited in a way. Um, and three summers in a row, uh, I got to DJ on the, on the terraces, put this in place, always always in summertime, uh, where you know family and friends and oh, friends nice. and friends would always join and, and have an after work, kind of uh, yeah, great time in, in in open air. What was as in still really trendy was like the the French boogie trend um, music genre really that came back to life. Um, there were some reissues uh, at the time on vinyl from some labels in Paris about those forgotten tracks of kind of the the French response to Italo disco. Right. French boogie, uh, French the boogie. I guess the official name of the of the genre. Didn't last long, few years in the eighties, just some very light hearted, light, you know, lightly written uh, lyrics and, and overall very danceable tracks. If if you were fluent in French, you would you you would think what has what are those lyrics even mean? What 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 is this about? But it's just all about pure enjoyment um, and, and enjoying you know partying at night, just enjoying summer in Paris. Lots of lyrics actually mentioned Paris in some areas in Paris uh, or all over France. Um, and there's a, there's a strong and the, the track I selected, um, "Easy Life" from New Generation, very bassy. Um, Feel good track, uh, summer track definitely, um, uh, with a strong uh, Hakuna Matata feeling to it. I think. Ah, yeah, <laughs> it's like this. It's just about you know what, enjoy yourself. Whatever happens, just keep enjoying yourself. Dance on, dance, dance to the groove, and 
and yeah enjoy, and just enjoy life really oh that's good and it, it became, became an anthem for all my group of friends really and it was on the loop for for i guess yeah two three summers yeah. in a row easily it's just yeah, it's a joyful track well i mean i love disco as well i'm, I'm certainly not as uh well versed in it um but my impression of you know even when it is uh in english uh there's not that much depth to the lyrics anyway. Normally, it is just about sort of enjoying your life. And exactly, stuff, which yeah, is yeah. part of the wonder. Yeah. But that was the funny thing when I was listening to this. Um, I couldn't understand what they were saying, but I was like, <laughs> I know they're saying nothing. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not saying anything really. Uh, but yeah, there's no. It's it's just yeah. It's just good fun. Uh, it's, it's just a great track. Overall. It is fun. Well, look, uh, I have yeah. two things to say on this. The first is, can, oh, can people still go to this venue? by the way, in Paris? Uh, yeah, definitely. It's still open, but it's, I, I don't believe they they do this anymore. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, they, yeah. It's just, it's still a great place and a great street to hang out in. Yeah. Um, That's fine. We, we'll find uh, somewhere else to listen to disco yeah, in course. Paris because that leads to the other thing, which is, I wonder if I could get your take on this and I think you'll probably be slightly biased. Do you think doing anything in French just makes it cooler? <laughs> like there was something about I, I don't think I'd heard a French disco before, a French disco song before, but I, I listened to it and I was like, oh, they're so good at everything, aren't they? <laughs> everything sounds so good when they do it. <laughs> well, I think there's, there's this thing, living in London now for almost five years, there's this thing about French sounding posh or, or fancy in a way uh, in here, uh, which is always fun to me because French being my, my language, I don't really see it at all this way. Yeah. Uh, but it's always fun to kind of add some some French words into an English uh, phrase and be like, oh, oh, oh. it's just a word, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, and, and Machini, most disco producers that would be French uh, obviously wrote everything in English because that was, that was the thing to do at the time. Yeah. Um, but I'm very happy that this movement happened and and we've got yeah plenty of those tracks that are still need to be you know digged here and there and and it's just uh yeah i have a whole place of this obviously on my on my on my spotify and there's a lot to to listen to and a lot to have fun to they're all really summer tracks yeah uh, i guess so yeah so much fun to listen to and and uh yeah it's just just overall good vibes the 80s were were, were about that right i believe yeah, all, all good fun all around, uh, all around Europe and the US. Lots, lots of good music being produced, and every country would do their little bits of funk and jazz and and disco. Uh, you know, Italo disco. You got you know, get jazz and funk from Brazil, which is brilliant. Yeah, um, South African as well, like all over the world. Japanese uh, boogie as well happened. Uh, it's called city pop. Uh, it's also brilliant. Um, same again, very light, uh, very synth pop y. Yeah. Um, but yeah, overall the eighties were all about that. Oh, that's fun. That definitely resonates with my first memories. My first uh, exposure to disco, I was living in Bristol. Um, it was Emilio who got me into yeah. it. Oh, nice. uh, this is Emilio De Salvo, a little shout out for the man who deserves it most. He now runs Satan's Whiskers. But back then he worked in a bar called Red Light. And uh, yeah, he would put disco on after hours and it just sort of changed my life, I suppose. And it coincided with a really beautiful summer in Bristol. And it was just sort of walking around, walking around, no, it never felt like enjoying life never felt like that before because it was listening to that music and walking around in the sun was just so good all right that is brilliant um we'll move on to our final one which is um a song for a venue that you would like to shout out uh, and obviously uh timing's right i would obviously i've been i've been, been in brilliant corners for the past um three four months i wanted to obviously think of a track that would particularly sound great there 
and it makes sense as well. Um, that's a track from Bob James um, called Tapanzi. Bob James was a uh, still is American uh, keyboardist, uh, producer, uh, music arranger, um, and he founded Tapanzi uh, Records, which actually happened to be yeah his uh, his own label um, in within Colombia, I believe, um, and obviously named after this track from that album uh, that came out in 1977, if I'm not wrong. Um, and yeah, once again, this one is also very um, much into jazz fusion, um, which is a blend of you know jazz, funk, um, disco sometimes. Obviously, we all, everything's revolved around, around disco, as you probably know. Oh, I love it. Um, and, and yeah, within Brilliant Corners, which is obviously all about um, Black music, uh, primarily, and, and jazz in the first place, Brilliant Corners being named after a jazz album. Um, obviously, Tapanzi made so much sense, I think, to me. Uh, could also be a great transitional track between dinner and um, and dance floor uh, within the worlds of Brilliant Corners, I believe. Yeah, I, I, it's such a brilliant place. Um, I always really admired that. You can tell I've gone on about it a lot, as, uh, <laughs> that transition. but. Um, somewhere that can do both is really great it was on the first conversation that i had um in this podcast mm-hmm. um that this person was talking about acoustics in a room and the importance of it and i mean i i always had a um, a bit of insight into this just because satan's whiskers is really great for it like it was really good for mm-hmm. dates um because people were all sat together in this middle section you and the person you were with were right next to another couple and then another couple next to them. So it was quite, quite close. But the music was played loud. Mm-hmm. So there was something isolating about that. There's obviously safety and uh, safety and comfort around people. But given the texture of the room, you never really felt like you had to shout. So it was like the best of both. I always thought that was so well done. And it is the same in Brilliant Corners. Because the other the other end of the spectrum is the worst thing in the world where you walk into um, bars and you know the music isn't that loud, but for some reason you're having to shout. And Simon, my first guest, gave a really good example where you, even more than that, you walk into certain restaurants and bars and all you can hear is cutlery. You know, um, people managing certain places think this is part of the experience, having no music at all or having too much of it or having just the right level. Um, you know, curating the music is one thing. Most places just... Don't really. Um, obviously, Satin's Whiskers do it brilliantly, and and they're known um, partly, obviously, for their amazing classic cocktails, but for the music selection, which is always impeccable, and and matches so well the, the space itself and the and the area. Um, but yeah, there's nothing worse than than I guess working somewhere and having to shout to just to just have a regular conversation, right? Um, so when when it's well done, sound is always sound and music together. It's rarely done right. I think very rarely. Um, so when you find a place that does it right, it really kind of like, it's always in the background, but it really uh, elevates the experience overall. Uh, even if you come in just for dinner, just for wondering quickly after, before, after dinner, or just uh, before coming home, this background thing that's just so refined will make a difference and you will, you will be talking about it to your friends and your family and, and, and hopefully come again. Cause yeah, not many places, most places don't do it right. Yeah. It is a special place. Um, and I'm fairly sure this is okay to say you're um, opening a second place soon, right? We are indeed, yeah. Within a few weeks now. Oh wow! Um, yeah, it's coming very fast. Uh, See, you got... are a sort of man made of calmness. 
<laughs> I feel like at this moment, you know, in, in sort of venue openings, uh, people don't typically look like you right yeah, now. No. Uh, well, it, it's I'm still on the I'm on my my off period right now of the week, so I'm still quite relaxed. I try to keep it chilled. Um, but yeah, there, there's there's a lot to do. Yeah. Um, but it's it's overall very exciting. Um, obviously, I came. I feel like I came at the right time for 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 all this. Uh, it's the first the first opening uh, of a permanent venue. Um, since Burning Corner has opened over eight years ago now, so it's a, kind of kind of a big deal to um, to try and make it right. Um, it's going to be called Mu, uh, which is also um, a jazz album name from Don Cherry this time, um, and it will feature live music, um, Robata Grill, uh, some more of a cooked kind of fireside cooking uh, Japanese food, um, and a slightly bigger bar and bigger floor as well. Um, literally 37 seconds walk from Bring the Corners, which is uh, overall quite cool. That's good. I wonder if there's going to be just sort of like traffic in both directions from one venue to the other. Yeah, most likely. I guess we we are we're discussing it already, and and we'll see we'll see how that turns out to be. And but overall, uh, you know, the community that uh, Bring the Corners built, um, kind of passively and actively along the years. Um, with also their their um, their pop up in in Hackney, uh, Giant Steps, which happened to be very successful, and people love the the idea and the once again the sound system and the the curation and all the great parties they had there. Um, yeah, it all this, this this community is quite quite large now, and you get lots of you see lots of people coming on almost a bi-weekly basis or, uh, you know, a weekly basis that would come back even though, you know, have the same food and the same drinks because they just love the space, the whole, the overall experience and hopefully genuine service that comes with it. So we are uh, very pumped about Mu uh, opening very soon. Uh, How do you spell that? M-U. Ah, easy. Yeah, yeah between uh, <laughs> brackets. Uh, it's, it's how it's called. It's how it's written on the album. Yeah. Um, and it is, it is uh, yeah, it's, pronunciation will be quite... Um, I guess difficult for people, but I guess I think the right one is Mu. Mu. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, right, I'll uh, refine that by the time I next speak to you. <laughs> Just like I did your second name. You nailed it. Absolutely <laughs> nailed it. As I said, uh, very few people uh, in this country uh, do it in the first on the first time like this. So well no, done. It's just this fine balance between like being a bit non-committal and quick, <laughs> yeah. but then also putting loads of thought into it <laughs> in advance it's very smartly smartly done well good done. i appreciate it um well yeah i mean we were sort of i basically led us down another gushy path uh, about brilliant corners because i like it so much but we didn't really spend that much time on the song um it is a brilliant one just to shout it out again it's called tap and z by bob james um and yeah just consistent good time music um consistent with the rest of the playlist absolutely sort of mouth-watering um, piano solo. I text you as I was listening to it live. I was listening to the whole thing live saying, dude, these, the, these tracks are so good. And then at that moment, the uh, piano solo in Tafan Z came on. I was like, sort of melted into my seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Yeah, it is um, so good. Very, very well timed as well. Very nice. Um, yeah, indeed, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for coming all this way uh, and speaking to us. Everyone, make sure you go to Brilliant Corners and move when it opens. Um, and make sure to listen to this um, this playlist alongside. Thank Cheers. you very much, man. Thank you very much, man. Appreciate Thank it. You. See you soon. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bar Fabric Presents. If you've enjoyed the show, please share and leave us a review. Over the last two episodes, Garag Cahill, Slane's master distiller, gave lots of great advice, including info about courses and a real insight into the business. Check out the first part of the conversation if you haven't already. 
And, as Joseph mentioned in four more bars, there will be an accompanying playlist where you can hear all of the tracks they spoke about. You can find the link to the Spotify playlist in the show notes, which also features some bonus tracks not discussed on the show. Thanks, Brian, for that insight. Some really good tracks that I'm definitely going to add to my playlist. This has been Bar Fabric Presents. Thanks to all of our guests, and of course, thank you for listening. I'm Ali Didianko. This podcast was recorded at Capsule 24 Studios in London and produced by Silver Music Entertainment.